Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. following is an extract from my book. This chapter is called 18 Harrow Avenue. As the farm lorry reversed up the drive to take her furniture to her new home, she looked back in panic at 18 Harrow Avenue, soon to be torn down for bijou townhouses. The pre-war house, built by her husband at a time when homogenous red-brick semis were all the rage in suburbia, had a sort of Bauhaus styling, or perhaps modernist, although I doubt Le Cabusier was on anyone's mind when it was built. Not that any of the old biddies along the street knew what Bauhaus was. At the time of its construction, which I suppose was pre-World War II, this was a shock to the liberal-minded. It was exciting and modernist, even radical. The clean, straight lines, the flat roof, the simple portico, all designed in clear-cut Weimar lines. Now standing dark and empty, the walls bare of the fine paintings and rococo mirrors, the delicate claw-footed side tables purchased from Woburn Abbey or some equally ancient pile, packed away together with the Murano glass ashtrays, chipped and cracked Royal Winton and Wedgwood, and the faded Sanderson chintz, carefully stored in crates or sold at the flea market. The bay windows would no longer cast their inviting light across the lawn. The house was still splendid, if somewhat tired, having done its duty, serving the past four generation of kids, all of whom loved it, yet none of whom seemed to have respected it. In the far corner of the plot, an ancient jacaranda tree with the last of the season's mauve blossoms scattered across the lawn was marked with a crude white X, ready to be torn down and cut up for firewood. An ignoble end for a noble tree. A tree that held so many secrets. The garden stretching for what, two acres, all uprooted, the moonflowers, guavas, avocado trees and flame trees gone. The things of her old world, now a thing of the past, and a dreary future at Rosefriars flats, offering nothing but nosy neighbours hemmed in by ugly, utilitarian, red suburban brick houses, more like bunkers. Rosefriars, she thought, what an awfully twee name. You know it's for the best, Mum, my mother couched, peering across at her mother. I mean, it's only a matter of time until you get murdered. Oh, Gresham, be careful with that box. Those things are expensive. Anyway, Mum, this Mugabe lot don't give a fig about law and order. And an old woman living on her own? Well, yes, I know, Elizabeth, she snapped. 
When angry, my grano is called Mum by her full Christian name. My gran was a sentimental old thing, but having to be wrenched from her home so suddenly was a shock. I would have been happy to have died there, she said, a stubborn look set upon her face. She shook her head and stared straight ahead, and anyway, I had my dogs to protect. Oh, for God's sake, Mum, those soppy dogs would do nothing. Don't be ridiculous. My gran raised her hands in front of her in mock surrender. All right, enough, Elizabeth. She turned her head to the side to hide the tears. Even the smell of the place seemed to have changed. The wood smoke from the bonfires at the back, or from Gresham, the cook's small home behind the house, now extinguished. That constant heady smell of roses and lavender, long gone. My gran, or Ganty, as she was known to her pack of grandchildren, lived in a house that had begun to crumble around her like some ageing grand dame. The dog hair and the cracks in the walls were invisible to her. The ceiling, peeling back in one corner where a fresh crop of mushrooms grew, seemed not to concern her. The creaking sprung floors and shabby kitchen appliances, not to mention the pre-war electrical cords, had become a hazard. On closer inspection, the spode and wedgewood displayed around the sitting room were held together with trinopon glue. Slowly, the heirlooms disappeared to the maid Sophie's house in Harare Township, or to some dodgy antique dealer down the road. Ganty had no concept of money and often parted with valuable antiques for a song. So strange to think that this place would no longer exist in just a few weeks' time, the bulldozers having ripped the tree stumps from the ground, the verdant lawns torn up by their steel tracks. So many memories. Good mostly. My aunt Susan and Lib growing up in the house. Lib sneaking in on the back of the milk cart after a night on the town with Barry Norman, later to become the BBC film critic, and getting whipped across the back of the legs with a riding crop for behaving like a loose woman. Barry also lived on Harrow Avenue. Lib recalled the time when Susan rushed up to the nuns at St Anne's Hospital screaming that Dinah was getting fucked. I expect those poor nuns must have got the shock of their lives until they realised that Dinah was a King Charles Spaniel. Ganty smiled at the thought. And what of those dogs? Always the dogs. Alsatians, sausage dogs, spaniels, corgis, schnauzers, mongrels and pedigrees. Barking and snapping and rushing underfoot. And Lord, the hair, dog hair everywhere on the garden furniture, on the sofas, on the beds. Few seemed to notice or care, and those who did knew not to comment. This fading grand dame was once the centre of the universe for so many people. It used to be such an elegant house, tastefully furnished. For us grandchildren, the highlight of the week was always Sunday roast. Cousins Mark and Madeleine and Duncan and Mandy and I, together with the, always a posse of hangers-on, would descend for lunch 
cooked by the imperturbable Gresham, who gave us a clip around the air if we got too unruly. My grandfather, known as Fluffy, would always make a hash of the carving. He would not have considered letting someone else take over. Ganty would become so frustrated it was not unusual for a pudding bowl to fly across the room and explode in a splatter of jelly, strawberries and cream set against the Jackson Pollock print. Pass the potatoes, please, Mandy, one of us might ask, trying to ignore the green and red blob sliding down the wall. While 18 Harrow Avenue hosted a plethora of fascinating visitors, my grand much preferred the company of animals to people. Birds of all colours and sizes flocked to the garden where they would religiously get fed. Bush doves and African green pigeons would trip you up as they pecked under the table. Flocks of blue waxbills, red-backed larks and yellow wagtails vied for attention. Canaries and budgies and countless colours hung in cages above our heads on the veranda. Who's going to feed the birds? My poor dicky birds, my gran lamented as she was gently guided to the waiting car. Oh, mum, that old house is just too difficult to run without an army of staff, not to mention dangerous for a woman on her own. Anyway, since dad died, the place has been crumbling around you. You just don't seem to notice, do you? I'm rarely on my own, you know, Lib, she said. There are always people popping in to see me. My mother looked at her, exasperated. They're all bloody pensioners, Mum. How on earth can they keep you safe? Anyway, there's space for a small garden at Rosefriars. You'll love it. Of all my memories of 18 Harrow Avenue, it was without a doubt the garden that endures. Ganty could be seen from morning until night, kneeling on the lawn in her floral sundress, cigarette hanging from her mouth, a huge straw hat upon her head and a trowel in her hand, gently planting seedlings. Hers was an English country garden that attracted admirers from far and wide. Another vivid memory is the radio. Unlike life on the farm, 18 Harrow Avenue always had music and voices and sound. The wireless was on from breakfast until the early evening news bulletin on TV. My week just now is breakfast. I'll be saying cheers to you all. Have a super day today. And don't forget that uh, keep smiling. It's 1979 and let's see it be a, it be a wonderful year. So until next we meet, most probably Saturday, all being well, smile along. Cheers, everyone. An old black and silver Panasonic portable bound together with masking tape followed us from one side of the house to the other. The Rhodesian Broadcasting Corporation was the only channel we could get. But the talent down at RBC was just as good as BBC. I can still hear the dulcet tones of Jill Baker reading the news, 
or the wonderful BBC voices of John Parry, Jeffrey Atkins and Alan Riddell, three characters whose crisp BBC accents dominated the airways for more than a decade. These people came into our lives and remained an integral part of our world for many, many years. Possibly the most popular programme was Sally Donaldson's Forces Requests. And what else is there to say except to all Rhodesians, to all our security forces, may you have a very peaceful future. Have you ever heard of the men of the Green Beret? Have you ever seen them out on a big parade? Silver and green Sally was a glamorous woman with lacquered hair piled high on her head and large doe eyes. She would travel with her team to the sharp end and interview the troopies, the boys in the bush. Force's request was aired at the end of the day. By then, we were on our tenth cup of tea, having migrated with the sun back to the other side of the garden, where tables were set up under a large shady abo tree, and Gresham's wonderful lemon cakes of scones dripping with clotted cream and jam were served. Here the ladies would chatter away while doing their knitting. Ganty might be working on some fabulous frock taken from a McCall Vogue pattern. Most of Susan and Lib's clothes were fashioned by my gran, and they always looked chic. The gossip beneath those trees and among the flocks of dicky birds would get so animated that Helen Martin, my gran's best friend, once knitted a baby romper suit with three legs. The mind does boggle. For hours we would listen to the animated conversations. They painted an exciting and exotic picture to this impressionable young lad. And boy, was I impressionable. Of all the stories, it was those about my Aunt Susie or Cousin Fiona, Lady Montague of Bewley, that I loved the most. My mum's sister Susan was a star of the London stage and Broadway in the late 50s and early 60s. Her husband, Andrew Ray, was a film star. Quite different to my mum, Susan had a short, twiggy haircut and was dubbed the Bridget Bardot of the UK by the tabloids. Ganty had a suitcase full of clippings from the British press, a photo of Susan rushing out of the stage door, wedding dress hoiked above her knees as she ran from a matinee performance to get to her wedding on time. Susan again in fishnet tights, photographed by the tabloid Daily Mirror, I think, captioned Saucy Susan. Susan and her kids, Mark and Madeleine, were flown secretly to the UK to be on the set of This Is Your Life. Andrew's father, the comedian Ted Ray, was the star of the show. This was the reality of Sundays at Avondale gossip, not necessarily about the neighbours, but about Joan Collins, Susan Hampshire, Rolf Richardson, Celia Johnson. It was like a fantasy, only it was real. At the height of her career, Susan lived in the UK with Andrew and the children. They were often in our thoughts, but separated by bush, savannah, oceans and the teeming streets of London. 
They were with us through the LPs usually sent by Madeleine, or the jewellery clunking on Mum's wrists, bartered for by Andrew at some South Asian market. They were there in the British magazines and tabloids scattered around the house, with pictures of Fiona, Sue and Andrew at some glamorous event. There were curios from Kathmandu and theatre reviews from the West End, and best of all, there were letters from Susan. Her distinctive handwriting curling across the flimsy blue aerograms. Her stories and messages so clear and so close, she might have been in the other room. For Christmas presents, usually arriving nearer to Easter, there were the St. Michael's M&S jerseys and Pears soap and black magic chocolates, luxuries which to this day still remind me of them. The left-hand drawer of my mum's dressing table was an Aladdin's cave of fabulous things from the London of her past. I mean, just fabulous, darling. She lived there when she was 18. These drawers were hallowed ground and we were not meant to be rummaging through them. I doubt if my dad even knew about it. When you opened the drawer, you were engulfed with a scent that teleported you right into the narrow streets of Soho and the West End. Here were autographed programmes from plays and musicals, invitations to El Burnett's risque stork club, the symbol of London cafe society, where movie stars, gangsters, celebrities, showgirls and aristocrats all mixed freely. Or the flashy London casino with its saucy neon dancing lady, her legs forever kicking up in a can-can. There were menus from restaurants such as Rules on Maiden Lane and Jay Shiki in Covent Garden. I would press the menus against my face and smell them. Some had a faint scent of Chanel or Miss Dior. Like watching a Fellini film, I would lie back and read each page and dream. I noted the hairstyles, the fur stoles, the eyeliner, the lacquered lips, I imagined tables of diners, fogged in cigarette smoke, sipping champagne from a cut-glass coupe held elegantly in tiny gloved hands, the bubbles fizzing up their noses. I imagined the conversations about ashrams and jokes about cranky directors or eccentric movie stars. The theatre programmes often contained names of famous actors, many of them signed to Libby with Love. There was even an old vinyl record from the BBC staff labelled London Calling Libby. My mum spoke of Chelsea and Earl's Court, which were the it places in the late 50s. They were the domain of those on the fringe of society where the heady excitement of high-bred, often impoverished toffs mixed freely with East End criminals and beat-generation poets, artists, actors and their entourages of managers, party animals, drug dealers and moles. Fiona, Susan and Andrew were part of it all. It must have been intoxicating. But having decided that the hedonism of London life was no place to bring up kids, 
Susan returned to live in Rhodesia. She and Andrew had a huge influence on me, as did their kids Madeleine and Mark. Susan virtually became a surrogate mother to me during those many weekends spent at 18 Harrow Avenue. When Susan moved back to Rhodesia with the kids, Andrew would occasionally visit us. We loved him unreservedly. We knew of no adult in the country who behaved like Andrew. My father naturally loathed him. I don't know, I, I say that with a pinch of salt, I suppose. But Andrew represented everything my father hated in the liberal Brits. Although we all thought John secretly had a sneaking respect for Andrew, Uncle Andrew was a bohemian, hippie, erudite, pot-smoking, caftan-wearing provocateur. Many a time my dad would drive down to the sheds and see Andrew in a flowing robe sitting in the lotus position in the middle of the workers' compound meditating the village quietly going about their business around him. I'm sure he did it just to annoy my dad. He got up my father's nose and the rows that ensued were legendary. Let me call a taxi, Andrew would exclaim as he walked out of the sitting room after some blazing political row. Andrew, don't be daft, my mother would reply. Anyway, you can't get a taxi around here. We're a hundred miles from anywhere. Then I shall find a bus, snapped Andrew. This would be followed by roars of laughter from the sitting room. These set-tos rarely lasted longer than the next scotch. I believe Andrew was a threat to my dad. He stood for freedom of expression, free love, the Beatles, weed and LSD. His funny stories and famous friends won us over. People sat engrossed as Andrew held court and told tales in his wonderful English accent about this famous person and that, about Kathmandu and Morocco and the hippie trail, about ashrams and gurus and music we had never heard of. Andrew epitomized flower power and this rubbed off on many people who knew him. To this day, my mum is still very much a boho chick with jangling bracelets and beads and flowing tops and tunics. I never tired of Andrew's antics and prankish behaviour. He was kind and gentle towards us kids who had never really known tenderness from a man other than our own granddad. Yet Andrew was a raging liberal. His own leftist tastes even got him thrown out of Rhodesia by Ian Smith's government, being one of the few people I knew, if not the only person I know, who was a PI or prohibited immigrant. He even became a member of Mugabe's ZANU PF party after independence, although later in life he agreed Mugabe had lost the plot and that the Zimbabwe dream had been a spectacular failure. 
Andrew and Susan's political leanings rubbed off on their kids too, and many Sundays spent at 18 Harrow Avenue would degenerate into a shouting match with Mark and Madeleine on one side and my siblings and me on the other. In retrospect, our naivety regarding the Smith government was pretty spellbinding, considering he had declared UDI without even bothering to hold a referendum. But things were different then. Yet... Once all is said and done, kids were dying on both sides in the war, and it was horrific and far too easy to judge with hindsight. For the most part, Susie kept her politics to herself, although she was far more liberal than my mum, and once famously refused to shake the hand of Prime Minister Ian Smith, instead embarrassing the man by reminding him of the affair her grandmother, Bella Kay, had conducted with his father. She loved Africa, and although she returned to England for a few years to try and save the marriage, her heart might not have been in it. Life in the UK wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Constant strikes, lengthy blackouts, frigid winters, three-day working weeks and very little money were a fact of life. One time when Madeleine was just a baby and Susan was returning to another bleak English winter, her nerves just got the better of her. These farewells were fraught with sorrow at the best of times, Susan and Mum clutching each other, bawling uncontrollably as people do when they have no idea when they will see each other again. At the last minute, Susan suddenly thrust baby Madeleine into Mum's arms and dashed towards immigration. My Mum looked down at the beautiful violet-eyed babe in her arms. Oh, Susie, what on earth have you done? By the time she looked up, her sister had disappeared from view. Rushing upstairs to the balcony, she called after her sister as she was about to board the BOAC flight to London. Bring her back to me safe and sound, Lib, Susan called. It's the only way I'll be certain to see you again. And with that, she was gone. My gran and mum became surrogate parents to dear Madeleine, and although I'm told that it was the nanny, Sophie, who rarely took over, after waiting for a year with no sight of Susan, my mother flew back to London with the child and, as promised, reunited her with her mum and dad and newly born brother Mark. Leaving Madeleine behind in this day and age would simply not be tolerated, but I see this as a divine act of love and understand entirely how Susan was thinking. Families split apart by whole continents back in the 60s rarely saw each other again. All too often, departure meant forever. Both Andrew and Susan died relatively young, Andrew taking his final bow by having a heart attack on his agent's floor in London, and Susie of lung cancer a few years later. I miss them Terribly, I still occasionally hear someone laughing or chatting on BBC radio and it sounds just like Susie and all these memories come flooding back. Stories about Kenneth Williams and his camp entourage. Diana Dawes and her alleged sex parties in Sunningdale. 
The notorious East End gangsters, the Cray twins, who knew both Susan and Andrew through Diana Dawes and how the schizophrenic gay twin, Ronnie, sent Susan a lace hanky every year for her birthday, no matter where she was living. The fact that he even knew her address was alarming enough. There are stories about cousin Fiona who married Lord Montague of Bewley, a man not without his own skeletons. And we would sit and listen with delightful abandon about all their shenanigans. Fiona was every bit the lady. She was tall and willowy with big hair. At Christmas she would send cards with pictures of her and her family wrapped up in furs with Palace House Bewley looming behind them. Even the envelopes had their own unique postcode. Susan and Andrew and Lady Montague were not the only stars in the family, however. From our side of the pond, we finally got two members of our family into the movie industry. Their cameo performances rocketed them to stardom in 1987 in a blockbuster movie still being watched a quarter of a century later. These accolades belonged to my brother and sister-in-laws, two Scottish terriers. They were flown around the country in all the style that a star is accustomed to. These two small, cheeky black dogs, who I'm certain had given the odd black worker a nip or two in their time, were the two Scotties owned by Donald Woods in Richard Attenborough's epic. Cry freedom. Well, we can't all hog the limelight, can we? Now, things might have gone to our heads, but as with all things in life, there was always someone who managed to calm things down, to bring things back to earth and teach us humility and kindness and not to be a snob. That person was Fluffy. My grandfather Fluffy was the ying to Ganty's yang. My granddad Gordon Fluffy Burnett was, as his nickname implies, possibly the softest, kindest man I've ever known. Generous to a fault, funny and utterly endearing, he was the antithesis to my father, or indeed any of the other alpha males among our circle of friends. In his youth, in the early part of the 20th century, he would spend his holidays hunting, shooting and fishing along the untamed rivers of the Zambezi, Gwai and Shangani. He told us tales about his treks and ox-drawn wagons to the foothills of the Mazoe Range to shoot leopards, once climbing hand over foot up a steep granite cliff, only to come face to face with the very leopard he was tracking. He spoke of herds of sable antelope where farmland now exists, or falling asleep on the banks of the Sunyati River, only to awaken just before a crock was about to take him. His adventures enthralled us kids, and yet this gentle man was not a hunter by nature. He was a thinker, an intellectual, 
an extraordinary brain, won him a coveted Bite Scholarship, a forerunner to the Rhodes Scholarship, but restricted only to residents of Rhodesia and Nyasaland. The outbreak of World War II prevented him from going to Oxford, and he spent most of his life working in the Rhodesian Parliament Library, a posting my father always felt was a cop-out. He was adored by everyone, both black and white, and his funeral was attended by both Ian Smith's party and Mugabe's, something quite unheard of at the time. In another age, perhaps we might have heard the captivating shout, Bayete! Fluffy drove a clapped-out Opal station wagon that groaned and farted its way up the school drive, much to the hilarity of the boarders and utter humiliation of us kids. Fluffy didn't care, and in truth neither did we. But kids are impressionable, and I'm ashamed to say that on occasion we hid away in the dorm or ducked behind the seat when driving past the rugby fields. We were lucky to have a grandfather who taught us to appreciate plant life in the garden and in the felt. We would often spend Sunday mornings on thieving missions to places such as the botanical gardens and even people's homes. Look at the colour of that geranium. Let's get a cutting. Hurry, hurry, before anyone sees you. And in a trice, the cutting was stowed away under the rug in the boot, ready for replanting in the rockery. My gran loved the English country garden flowers, eventually creating a paradise abundant with flora pilfered by her grandchildren from many an unsuspecting housewife. Fluffy was an eccentric and sloppy dresser. He was doddery and at times was a man of limited means. His wealth came from kindness and generosity and us kids loved him beyond reproach. Later in life, I would see or hear something that took me back to those fabulous farting drives in the opal down the avenues, dogs yapping in the back, hairballs everywhere, Fluffy constantly saying, oh, heck, as he missed yet another turn or nearly hit an approaching car. Silly old coot, the irate driver would shout. When he died, a great wrench was felt within the family, a chasm that could never be filled particularly for my sister Mandy, who saw Fluffy as a surrogate father. I'll never forgive myself for not going to his funeral. I've no idea why I didn't go. I was working on a farm at the time, and surely my boss would have given me time off. It made little sense. It seemed such a strange choice to stay away from the final send-off to a man who had spent his life giving to everyone. So perhaps now I can salute both Ganty and Fluffy. I am what I am because of them. Bayete! Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for 
mud between your toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.